Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman, a senior lecturer at the American University School of International Service. Thank you all for listening. Today, I'll be talking to Dirk Moses about his groundbreaking new book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression, published by Cambridge University Press in January of this year. Dirk, welcome to the show. Great to be here with you, Jeff. Great to have you. And uh, can you start us off by telling our listeners a little bit a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm uh, a historian. I just started a new job at UNC Chapel Hill, where I've got the uh, somewhat portentous title of Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor in Global Human Rights History. Uh, but until then, I taught mainly at the University of Sydney for the last 20 years uh, in Australia, though with five years at the European University Institute in Italy. And uh, I started out in German history. That's what I did my PhD in at UC Berkeley in the 90s. And but I was always interested as well in Australia and colonial history, which I studied as an undergrad at the University of Queensland. And the, I tried to link these interests in the following way. As I did my PhD on debates about the Nazi past in post-war Federal Republic, you know, so Germany, West Germany after 1945, how did intellectuals come to terms with the meaning of the collapse of democracy in the 1930s and then, of course, with the Holocaust. So that book came out as German Intellectuals in the Nazi Past in 2007. But, you know, I did conclude that it's all very well to to scrutinise how uh, another country, well, at least its intellectual class, has dealt with its own historical traumas and crimes that it's committed. But what about your own country? And when I came back to Australia in 2000 and to start teaching in European history, but also to launch a, a, a course on genocide, which had never been taught before, I couldn't find a book on the subject. Although there's plenty of research on frontier violence and on stolen children and so forth, there, there wasn't a book that packaged it under the genocide rubric. And so I, I edited a book on that subject, which is my first. It came out in 2004 called Genocide and Settler Society. And then I ran a conference on the subject, and to make it more global, that came out as a book in 2008 called Empire, Colony, Genocide. So you could see that I became very interested in the global history of colonial genocide, if you like. But since 2010 or so, in other words, in the last 10 years, the second half of my you know, research activity, I became as interested in the concept of genocide itself, you know, rather than you know utilising it for understanding how indigenous peoples are subject to or victims of settler colonial genocidal experiences. I'm interested in, well, why do we even use this category at all? You know, in a sense, you know, it's less a political question than a, than, a, than the kind of analytic question historians ask. And that set me on a project about the, an intellectual history of the concept of genocide. And taking a somewhat more agnostic perspective, you know, rather than a priori assuming it's a good thing that we have this concept that's saying, well, how does it function in international politics? What does it illuminate and what does it conceal? Uh, what kind of what kind of violence against civilians is not illuminated by this concept? And why do we engage in these somewhat at times fruitless debate labeling debates? You know, is it genocide? Is it not genocide? You know, when, you know, whether you answer yes or no, there are large numbers of civilians being killed and affected. So that's what led me to to the current book, which is, uh, you know, it's come out 
quite some time since the first book in 2007, but you can see I've been working on it for quite a long time. Thanks, Dirk. And does, you know, back, I, I want to say it was around 2008, you had a, a an essay on critical, uh, a critical theory of genocide. Was that sort of the starting point for um, this exploration? Yes, uh, very early on. I mean, I think the main change was a, a keynote I gave in 2010 at the University of Sussex, which was hosting the uh, conference of the International Network of Genocide Scholars, where I where I started making the links between uh, genocidal logic and security logics, you know, rather than racial logics, which is the, the usual paradigm for understanding genocide. You know, it's seen as a kind of a massive hate crime uh, modeled on the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the, the ideal type or the archetype for genocide. And then, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, when you look empirically at attacks on indigenous people uh, over the ages, when you look at the, the, the context, the military context in which attacks take place, which you know very well as someone who wrote an outstanding article in the Journal of Genocide Research last year, it's clear that it's very difficult at times to distinguish a genocidal and a military logic uh, in attacking of civilians because the, at least the perpetrators say that they're doing this because of security. Now, you know, whether that's a reasonable conclusion on their part is another question, but uh, it, it's such a consistent pattern of, of rationalization that uh, I think it needs to be taken seriously analytically. So uh, you know, around you know, 2008, 9, 10, I started you know, producing articles, thinking through these issues, and they then coalesced in, into, into the book uh, that we have now. So uh, I have to also say that the, the global war on terror that the, the US has led, but Australian forces have also been involved in, uh, you know, since the early 2000s, is also a context because the, the rhetoric that, uh, about terrorism is one that you obviously find in the global war on terrorism, but it's the language that the Syrian state uses uh, about its opponents in the civil war there. It's a language that the Myanmar military uses in its attack on Rohingya. It's a very consistent pattern in the way states talk about oppositional forces. They're terrorists, they're bandits, uh, they, they threaten the, the integrity of the state, and, and we need to, we need to uh, deal with them ruthlessly. Uh, and so I'm interested in, in that logic because that's, that's what perpetrators say. Now, when we talk about genocide, we, we, we tend to fixate on, on other other kinds of rationalizations. We look at the you know the history of you know say quote unquote racial tension between groups and so forth. But I've found that that can really only answer some of the questions. It's not the full analytical, uh, the full analytically sat and satisfactory uh, answer to these questions of why why do states and and para states you know organizations that groups that want to become states uh, engage in this kind of behavior. Thanks, Dirk. And you, you've mentioned um, some examples already, but um, through this diverse array of examples from human history, you know, you show how the language of transgression has been used in defense of and in condemnation of the actions of different empires and states. Uh, can you talk about some examples from your book? And you also show how illiberal permanent security and liberal permanent security have been differentiated. Can you talk about the biases that influence such differentiations in the historical, the political, the academic, and the legal spheres? I know that's a, a lot tied into one, but 
Sure. Well, you're, you're, you're raising here the, the key terms of the book subtitle. You know, permanent security is one, the language of transgression is the other. Uh, and you asked first about the language of transgression and the, the, the cases that I refer to in, in detailing that's history. The language of transgression sounds you know, very complex uh, and jargonistic, but it's very simple. It's, it's the idiom we use to, on the one hand, condemn state atrocities, but also it sets the threshold of that which, quote unquote, shocks the conscience of mankind. That curious phrase recurs in humanitarian instruments, whether in the uh, the preamble to the UN Declaration on Human Rights, um, the 1946 General Assembly resolution calling for a genocide convention, it, versions of it are also in anti-slavery conventions and so forth since the late 19th century. And you know, once once I identified the the, the common use of that pattern in international treaties and in, and in you know speeches in the United Nations and the League of Nations and so forth, you realise well this is this is the language with which. Uh, international lawyers and politicians and so forth talk about excesses and they also set the threshold of what is truly shocking, you know, that which shocks the conscience of mankind. And I thought, you know, okay, where does this come from? And, you know, what are the, what are the, is there a history to the term and to each elements of the term, meaning what does it mean to shock? What does it mean to refer to the conscience of mankind? And I, through some digging, uh, which wasn't that difficult in the end. Uh, we just have to trace this back in, in quite well-known texts. Uh, I discovered or I determined that it really crystallizes for the first time in Las Casas's famous criticisms of the Spanish Empire in the 1550s. Uh, he wrote you know, a number of works uh, criticizing massacres and exploitation, slave, or slave-like conditions and so forth. And these became an international scandal. Were quickly translated into other European languages. Became very popular in the rival Protestant empires, so the Dutch and the English above all. And as a way of criticising the the rapacity of the you know the conquest and exploitation of the Iberian powers in, in the Americas, you know, the Protestant powers and empires, by by contrast, proposed that their expansion into the Indies or into the Americas, you know, which was going on around the same time. Uh, was not conquest, but it was peaceful colonization and settlement, you know, which led to the uplift, quote unquote, of the natives, you know, and uh, rather than their conquest and enslavement. Right? Now, in practice, of course, it wasn't like the theory, right? But the, 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 when we're talking about a language or an idiom, we're talking about justification mechanisms uh, or, or strategies, right? Legitimation strategies, which is an important uh, barbarian concept in the social sciences, as you know. And these have been used for hundreds of years. And, and what I show in sort of several long early chapters is that the, the, it's quite a stable discourse or language, if you like, but the context do change. So, you know, whereas in the early modern period, people would talk about Christendom, by the time of the Enlightenment, people were talking about humanity, which was you know, not necessarily a uh, religiously infused notion. And of course, abol- the abolitionist movements, uh, abolition of slavery in, in the late 18th century and into the 19th century is infused with this kind of language of you know, human conscience and it's being shocked by excesses and so forth. Now, it didn't mean that uh, kind of the liberal humanitarian conscience that, that wielded this language was anti-imperial. Uh, on the contrary, they, they just wanted a nice empire, a humanitarian empire, you know, uh, not the one like the Spanish, you know, which 
was was seen in terms of what's called the Black Legend, and it was of this uh, you know violent and exploitative empire, which uh, contradicted Christian precepts and so forth. In any event, you get this tension between different versions of empire throughout the nineteenth century. You know, uh, uh, a humanitarian one and one that that's uh, exploitative, and that came out above all in the in a number of ways in the nineteenth century. One was you know pro or forced slavery, and the other one was protecting. Christian minorities in the Ottoman Empire, uh, and and the third case was protecting indigenous or native peoples, as the terminology was at the time, in in the settler colonies. So, to give you an example, there were you know plenty of massacres by settlers of indigenous peoples in Australia, as in other parts of the British Empire, and there was humanitarian criticism of that in London, and in and in the capitals, in, in liberal newspapers, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne, and so forth. So you could see that there's a debate within colonial and imperial society about the, the morality of white expansion and conquest. And, uh, you know, people did wring their hands about this. And there were commissions of inquiry and an attempt to rein in settlers and so forth. I mean, a lot of it didn't work. Uh, but, the, you know, there was a lively, if you like, humanitarian debate about this. Now, this continues then into the late 19th century and comes out with the, with the scandals, for example, uh, on the exploitation of the Belgian Congo. And you know, once, you, once you read those pamphlets, uh, which criticised the, the, the Belgian king, uh, carefully you see that you know, they're, they're almost word-for-word replicas of the, the abolitionist pamphlets 100 years earlier. You know, and, the, and you could trace this all the way back to Las Casas. Now, what I'm arguing in the book is that Lemkin is inserting himself into this long-standing uh, European debate about the morality of empire and its limits and the, the terms with which you, you, know, you criticize um, uh, you know, various infractions by states and, and also private companies like the East India Company and so forth. Uh, and you know, that would shock the conscience of mankind. Okay? So Lemkin isn't inventing something from scratch, which is the usual view. And it's a view that I also held 10, 15 years ago. Right? Lemkin is creative genius who saw for the first time that there's this thing called genocide and he sort of names a crime that had always existed, right? as if people were helpless until then, you know, linguistically, categorically helpless. Uh, when in fact, you know, there was a, a quite rich idiom for, for speaking about um, mass criminality uh, the whole time. And so uh, not only do I argue that Lemkin of coins one word for something that was already there. He actually radically simplifies the, the language of transgression by, by focusing really only on you know, racial hatred and uh, uh, attacks on minorities. And it's because he was a, himself, I think, a, you know, a Jewish minority in Poland, and he himself was, he was also a committed Zionist. So his political imaginary was very much uh, uh, ethnic and nationalist. And uh, he, 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 the building blocks of humanity were, you know, comprised nations and, and religious groups, uh, rather than some abstract view of humanity, uh, you know, uh, of you know, universalism and so forth. So that's how he how he viewed things, and he he wasn't particularly interested in, in enslavement. Uh, so that fell out of genocide studies, or well, genocide never included labor exploitation in the way that it did in the language of transgression, because at the time of his writing in the 20s and 30s, you know, there were, lar- there were large standing, long-standing debates about forced labor in the, the British, and Ameri- British and French colonies, 
Belgian and Spanish colonies as well, you know, which was the, uh, the last, the next phase of the, you know, abolitionist movement because forced labor, you know, was a functional equivalent of, of uh, slavery. He wasn't interested in that at all, and nor was he interested in the, the League of Nations debates among international lawyers about the efficacy of aerial bombing of cities, you know, which had been sparked, of course, by the, the use of, of, to be sure, primitive aircraft capacity in the First World War. But everybody could see by the 1920s that there would be a rapid development of aircraft and the ability to bomb enemy cities and, uh, in, in an age of total warfare. And you know, which would affect civilians. And although Lemkin was himself interested in the protection of civilians, and in his book Access Rule Occupied Europe, he says, you know, my basic premise is that you need to distinguish between civilians and combatants, which is what all international lawyers at the time said. So he was just reflecting the, the consensus. But then he just says, I'm only really interested in ethnic, racial, and religious groups. So all these other groups uh, are excluded from the genocide, you know, notion as he as he formulates it in the 30s. He doesn't use the term genocide then, but he uses equivalence. He f- formulates it in 1943, 44. But it's sort of a, it's a narrowing of the gen- of the the idea of that which shocks the conscience of mankind. You know, in the end, it becomes something that resembles the Holocaust. Okay, whereas until then, the threshold I believe was much lower. Okay, so what we consider shocking now is it, it's much harder to be shocked. In other words, <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm arguing. You know, contrary to our to our common view of the you know, story of genocide as a concept, that it's actually in a constriction of our moral and criminal imagination or our imagination of mass criminality rather than an expansion. So that's the language of transgression. Okay, uh, the permanent security, which is this other concept I, I I come up with in the book, is the logic, the sort of quasi military security logic that I see as underpinning all things that, all these crimes which are bundled together by the United Nations uh, under the rubric of mass atrocity crimes. And that means genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and ethnic cleansing. These are all separate elements in the ICC statute, the International Criminal Court statute. Ethnic cleansing actually has a much less legally secure status than the other three, which which were in the Nuremberg indictment. And there's also, Crimes, sorry, genocide was only a minor piece of the, the Nuremberg indictment. It was crimes against peace, uh, aggressive warfare, which is the main one. But it was mentioned as an example of war crimes. In any event, the I'm arguing that under, underlying all these cases, um, all these crimes, as well as technologies of uh, uh, world policing, which I'll get into shortly, is a is a is a logic I call permanent security. It's a term I didn't invent, controversially perhaps. I take it from a Nazi war criminal at, at, at his trial in the success in Nuremberg trial. It was Otto Ullendorf uh, who, who led Einsatzgruppen D. It's one of these special action groups that, that mur- ma- engaged in mass murder of Jews in the mopping up behind the Wehrmacht as it, as it went through in the invasion of Russia, the Soviet Union in 1941 and 42. Uh, and uh, it was meant to secure the the uh, the the hinterland, you know, behind the the um, behind the lines, so that uh, it would be it would be pacified. There would be no partisans and so forth. And uh, we know that uh, in in doing so, the Einsatzgruppen targeted 
uh, entire Jewish communities, you know, including people who are not potential combatants and women and children and so forth. Now, when he was asked about this uh, in the trial, he said, you have to understand, I'm not just interested, we weren't just interested in vorübergehende uh, Sicherheit, as the Germans would say, you know, temporary, temporary security. We were interested in permanente Sicherheit, you know, permanent security. So once and for all, a once and for all action, which means that there will be no more population groups left from whom there might insurgents might be recruited. So I saw uh, at work here a, a kind of preemptive logic and, and a logic that also had a temporal dimension, meaning that uh, with this notion of preemption is that you annihilate threats before they become threats. That's a very paranoid way of thinking. Uh, now, in doing that, in doing so, he, he, he was effectively also, and this is what made me think of my reading in colonial history, he, he, when he was asked about Jewish children, he said, well, they're going to grow up and, and could become partisans. I thought, this is, this is the nits make lice logic that you see you saw on the American frontier. Uh, your readers or your listeners will know, you know this is a, a pernicious term, nits make lice, in which you would kill Native American children because they would grow up to be warriors. And, and resist the encroachment of their lands uh, by by American settlers. So I thought this is not just a German issue. Right? This is this is a, a pattern of a, a pattern of behaviour, you know, logic, if you like, which uh, is discernible in many other contexts. Right? So I started digging in around this concept of of permanent security. And another aspect of the trial with the trial transcript with Volendorf, who was, you know, a lawyer and, and, and a committed Nazi, but a very intelligent one uh, who, you know, could try to, you know, sp- who sparred with the prosecutors. And uh, one of them, you know, in response to his sort of nits make lice quip, he, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the prosecutor pulled, pushed back and said, well, you know, this is, this, is, this is outlandish. And he said, in response, Volendorf said, you're in no position to criticize me because when you flattened German cities and killed hundreds of thousands of people, you knew you would be killing German civilians, including children. You know, you know, the, the, and, and he wasn't wrong on that. Of course, the, in response, the, 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 usual, the usual argument is that, well, collateral damage in military, in, in, mili- in engaging in military necessity or implementing military necessity is not the same a genocide where the attempt is to annihilate a group as such. And in response to that, Ollendorf says, well, the outcome is the same. Okay. And now at that point, if you read the transcript carefully, it's, you know, the senior prosecutor steps in because he sees this is getting, this is heading to very dangerous waters for the allies. Okay. And then they, they, they sort of that line of, of arguments quickly cut off and they move into a, in, in another direction. And, you know, he's found guilty and hung. Uh, but no one's really looked at, at how this played out uh, in, 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 in the way that I've become interested in. So I, I, I take the idea of permanent security seriously, but, but I think it needs to be broken down. I mean, you can't just adopt the Nazi concept. You have, but you can adapt it right, and use it against people like Ullendorf uh, to condemn them, right? Um, because permanent security is a, is a utopian, completely illegitimate ideal. No state can can experience absolute safety. Yeah, that would mean total world domination or an autarkic empire along the Nazi line. Right? Uh, and and look what it takes to get that. You need to annihilate people who might or are a threat. 
you need to plunder uh, and enslave people and so forth, right? So this is, this is not a tenable way of organizing world politics, right? Now, it, you know, it's also clearly illegitimate and analytically unsatisfactory to, set, to equate Auschwitz with the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, it's a lot, there's a lot, large literature on this, by the way, because uh, you know, various people have tried to equate these things. Um, the logics are different, okay? However, I think it's also inadequate to just shrug your shoulders and say they're different and leave it at that. Because in the end, uh, hundreds of thousands of civilians uh, were being killed, uh, and, and including in the firebombing of Tokyo, I think it's about 100,000 in, in the German cities and so forth. And this, this set a precedent. Uh, I think around 2 million North Korean civilians were killed and 80, 80% of their urban and small towns were flattened in, in the North Korean War in the, in the early 50s. And then, you know, similar proportions in Vietnam. And then, you know, the Russians uh, flattening Grozny in the 90s. And then Syria flattening its own cities to, to, uh, to annihilate uh, what it sees as rebels. You know, there's a pattern here, okay? Uh, and the cover of the book is about, is, is from an artwork from a Yemeni artist about civilian deaths from Saudi ordinance. So you can see it's not just a you know a Western problem, right? There's a there's a uh, this is a, a, a practice that all kinds of states engage in, and so this needs to be theorized or captured analytically as well. This kind of killing of civilians in the course of military actions, uh, you know, that genocide is the wrong word for that. Okay, and and calling it genocide just doesn't make any sense. So I think, however, permanent security can work. And, but you need, you need to differentiate it into liberal and illiberal, which is what you, you asked me in the question. So let me just put it this way, it's very simple. Illiberal permanent security is persecuted or perpetrated in the name of an ethnos, you know, like the German people, okay? So, and, and it has no respect for international law and, uh, you know, it's like a fascist form of warfare, effectively, okay? Liberal permanent security, by contrast, is executed in the name of humanity, so it has a universalist dimension, and the globe is its, therefore, its uh, object of inquiry or object of action, field of action, rather, and it's, it is an often in, intent on containing illiberal permanent security. So here I'm talking about Pax Britannica and then Pax Americana, Okay. Now it's, however, unlike Nazi-style permanent security, it's consistent largely with international law, because killing lots of civilians in in, in collateral damage is not usually illegal unless it's grossly grossly disproportionate, right? So, you know, liberal scholars and many international lawyers will just usually leave it the analysis at that because they say, well, that's the law; they're obeying international law, so fine. Well, as an historian, I'm allowed to ask, well, you know, who made international law? Why is international law structured like this? Why is it legitimate for states to engage in mass violence in which large numbers of civilians are killed while putting down a civil war or, you know, preventing a civil war, putting down a colonial rebellion and so forth? And here I looked more closely and saw that this style of reasoning and and, 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 and legalization of state violence, you know, which which uh, countenanced mass violence against civilians was was invented by the imperial powers uh, since the 16th century, 
and has, and has enabled the global spread of European empires since then. So it's a, it's a creature of international law. International law is the handmaiden of imperial European expansion and has now become secularized and, and globalized in, you know, in, in many of the principles of international humanitarian law, which means the laws and customs of war, ironically, uh, which all states subscribe to. So the, the book is not taking international law as normative. It's actually questioning its very terms and saying that it itself is a, is a, a enables um, liberal permanent security to make this very concrete, in today's terms, drone strikes, you know, which I begin the, begin the book with, right? Drone strikes in the context of forever and endless wars, which is a term you hear a lot about these days, uh, countenances the serial, if small-scale, uh, killing of civilians in, in collateral modalities over time. And so the, these these will build these casualties will build up. So that means if you, if war is no longer punctual and limited, to, you know, to various moments, you know, in, in which there's otherwise large expanses of peace, but if war becomes permanent, as it as it has, uh, we will see if Biden's ending it. But you know, it has been for for the last twenty years or so, right? And then and longer if you if you want to see a chain of a connection since uh, since Korea in the early 50s, right? Uh, if, if war is effectively permanent and if and if warfare and the military the military military necessity enables uh, powers to kill lots of civilians collaterally, then you're in a situation where killing lots of civilians becomes normal and legal. And I think that's you know analytically interesting and morally untenable. And that's why that's one reason I wrote this book because we already have the tools to condemn the kind of things the Nazis did. Right? We have the genocide convention, but the genocide convention has been defined so narrowly, or genocide has been defined so narrowly in the convention that it's virtually impossible to prove. And uh, whereas the the usual mode of killing civilians since the Second World War is not genocide, it's it's other form, other modalities of violence. You know. And that's why I think we need to talk about permanent security. That's, uh, you know, something I think is so important about your book is, you know, it sort of moves us beyond saying that international humanitarian law says that's okay. It's okay to kill lots of people as long as, uh, as you said, it fits within uh, the principles of IHL, uh, such as distinction and proportionality. Um, yeah. You know, it's a... Uh, also, what you said about uh, you know said about handmaiden made me think of uh, you know Irving Horowitz had a, a quote from uh, his you know book uh, which I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but about how you know uh, war is um, all, all government all forms of government or types of government you know use war so essentially like that's okay but genocide is the handmaiden of the totalitarian state. And we can debate whether that's even accurate, but it still puts this situation in where we're differentiating, saying genocide is never okay, but war is okay. And perhaps especially because Western states participated, and especially the United States, um, almost endlessly, as you mentioned. So, yeah, yeah. So when he was writing writing that book, which was about state power and genocide in the mid seventies, he it came out in several editions, and the title changed once or twice. I think it's men- it's mentioned in chapter eleven, I think. Uh, discuss Horowitz uh, in detail. You know, he was a student of C. Wright Mills, 
and became disenchanted with Mills's you know, anti-military industrial complex uh, style of analysis. And he became uh, disenchanted with the new left and with the peace movement and the anti-war movement and became a kind of neoconservative intellectual by the, by the early mid-70s and, and held an important chair in sociology at, at Rutgers and, and came out with a series of studies and books you know, at the time when genocide studies was sort of crystallizing as a field in its very early days, you know, just a handful of people. And his, his books were very important benchmarks in, in, and, and, and in setting the, the intellectual paradigm of what genocide is and what it isn't. And the Vietnam debates, you know, which were still going on in the mid-70s, uh, but have been largely forgotten today, were, were, were the, is the context in which this distinction between legitimate warfare and illegitimate genocide took place. Now, uh, many of your listeners may recall, if they're at the more senior end of the spectrum, that uh, Marxist intellectuals like Jean-Paul Sartre used the term genocide to talk about the the, uh, the American campaign, and that led to a you know a, a, a criticism of that perspective, and you know which is entirely legitimate, of course. It was very very interesting debate, and I, I think one of the most most important uh, participants in this debate at the time and since is Richard Falk, the international lawyer, who at the time I think was at Princeton, but he's bounced around various universities, and and whose uh, whose memoirs just came out by the way, and they're very much worth reading. Uh, he you know, he, he and, and several others were trying to revive what they called the Nuremberg tradition, uh, about which is not about genocide, but about aggressive warfare, as I mentioned, in order to pressure uh, the American security elites uh, in relation to their to their you know military expansionism and adventurism in Vietnam. Okay, uh, uh, and you know even putting and even putting maybe generals on trial or politicians on trial. But he was uncomfortable with the the. The, the Sartrean argument about genocide, he didn't think it, it fit. Now, I reconstruct these debates in, in, from the 1970s in order to show how genocide was defined in the end extremely narrowly, um, in keeping ultimately with Lemkin's views and uh, large swathes of, of state um, power and violence, capacity for violence were, were left untouched by, by um, at least the genocide convention. Now, Defenders of this may say, well, look, you know, there is international humanitarian law and, you know, states uh, are constrained to some extent by this law. Um, so it's not as if it's just a free-for-all. And they're right. They're right. But but my answer to that is the following, is that genocide is called the crime of crimes. Um, and again and again, I have plenty of evidence for this in the book. You know, it's seen as the ultimate crime, the most evil of the crimes against humanity and so forth. You know, there is... Uh, whether people like to admit it or not, a hierarchy in international law and in the sensibility of the international public, you know, that which shocks the conscience of mankind, in other words. And the kinds of, the kinds of victims of collateral damage, uh, even if it's, even if it's uh, a crime against humanity because it was disproportionate, don't get the same kind of visibility. They're not grievable victims uh, in the same way as people who are deemed to be victims of, of genocide. So we, we talk a lot about Rwanda, uh, you know, understandably, but how many people talk about the crimes against civilians by, uh, in neighbouring Congo? Uh, you know, how many people talk about the, you know, 40 million plus people who died in the Great Leap Forward famine in the late 50s, early 60s in China, you know, which dwarfs all other, all other civilian 
uh, episodes of civilian destruction in the 20th century. Yeah? But it's never included in a course on genocide studies. Genocide is not the right term, okay? But that means that maybe genocide as a, is a problem, as a concept, which is why the book is called The Problems of Genocide. Thanks, Dirk. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've touched on on, on so many things here. Uh, and I was actually just thinking about Alex Hinton's Genocide Studies Canon, and I believe um, you know, Maoist China is maybe in the... Um, the periphery, uh, you know, basically there's six uh, sections of the canon, and it's in the uh, second to last, just above um, the forgotten cases, uh, and it yeah, raises really important questions about um, about uh, you know centering uh, the protection of life rather than um, sort as you said, sort of contributing to a, a hierarchy of of suffering or of crimes. Um, can can you talk to us a little bit about how? Um, you know, genocide became depoliticized and made it make becoming akin to a mass hate crime. Sure, sure, that, that's a, a very important concept in the book. Uh, you know, if I if I was able to have a much longer subtitle, which you know would never have been allowed by the publisher, I would have put <laughs> depoliticization in there somewhere. But it's you know, having now talked about the book with students in various uh, uh, con- uh, contexts now, um, I can see that it's very difficult for people to wrap their head around. Uh, so let me let me have a stab of it here. Now, in the genocide convention, the the language is, you know, the, uh, genocide is the intention to destroy in whole or in part an ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. As such, you know, what does this as such mean? Well, I you know, I nutted it out by looking at the the um, genocide convention debates, uh, which are contained in two volumes, about two thousand pages. And important historians of the Genocide Convention, like um, Bill Chavis and others, have also written about this, obviously. And what's clear is that that it was a compromise formula that was inserted uh, in order to prevent listing all the different circumstances in which genocide could take place. Uh, because the argument against that was then, well, then, then states would say, well, these are not the circumstances <laughs> that apply to our case. So, but the way it's been interpreted is that as such means attacking a group simply because individuals are members of that group. So, and that, that effectively means that they're attacked uh, as a crime. It's a crime of identity. It's a crime against identity. They're attacked solely because they're Armenian, solely because they're Jews. They're attacked as Jews, okay? Not for anything they've done, but just because of who they are. Now, that, that is an underlying assumption that is uh, intrinsic to the way genocide is formulated in law and also in, in popular culture. And you will see it uh, if you start looking uh, everywhere. And it's depoliticizing because when you, when you look at the way genocides unfold pragmatically or empirically, right, states... A, they claim they're never attacking anyone out of, you know, they're doing this. This is obviously an apologetic exculpatory argument. You know, they're never attacking a group because they don't like them. It's because members of that group are engaged in, in some kind of subversive activity. Okay, but when you look closely, it's often true. You know, there were Armenian revolutionaries. Uh, there were in the in before and during the First World War and separatists and nationalists. There were Armenians some Armenians who were fighting for the Russians when they invaded through the Caucasus, right? Um, now, that's, that's the standard Turkish argument, right? And so we had to engage in a, you know, in a, in a, in a deportation uh, 
exercise to get Armenian communities out of the areas. Um, now, what's illegitimate, though, is this this idea of permanence, is that we use this as a pretext to to deal with the entire population rather than the insurgents themselves. Okay, You're engaging in an exercise of collective guilt, you know, which is clearly illegitimate. This is what's happened in Myanmar with Rohingya. There have been some Rohingya uh, insurgents who attacked police stations, right? But in response, the Myanmar military deported the entire Rohingya population of Rakhine State into you know, through violent terror into into Bangladesh, you know, which is clearly illegitimate, okay, rather than dealing with the insurgents themselves. Okay. Now, uh, so I've gone, remind me of your question so I get back on in the thread. The, uh, the question was about um, deportization of the term genocide, or right. of the crime so of genocide. Exactly. So there is a political interaction that's, you know, there is an empirical interaction between members of the some small number of members who are engaged in you know insurgent behavior, rebellious behavior, and the state. That's the pattern. Okay, uh, in in response, then the state engages in you know illegitimate permanent security episodes. Now, that I think can that was understood before the concept of genocide. Okay, and that's what I meant by the language of, language of transgression and. Mm-hmm having the equipment, the mental equipment to understand these dynamics, right? It, it was politicized. Now, by focusing purely on racial hatred, which Lemkin does when he starts formulating the concept, and, and, then, and then it becomes enshrined in international law. And then with the, with the Holocaust having this immense stigmatic aura, we have the situation where victim groups need to portray themselves as akin to Jewish victims, you know, unpolitical in the sense of being utterly innocent and unengaged in an insurgency, you know, and, and being attacked solely on the grounds of their identity in order to gain international attention. So you need, they, it, it got the, the idea of depoliticization is very much bound up with the, the status and image of the victim. Now, in the literature I drew on, uh, people talk about the exemplary victim. The exemplary victim is the utterly innocent, unagentless one. That's why people talk about focus on women and innocent women and children you know often they talk about you know innocent women and children which is odd because the assumption is that the you know civilian women and children are should be innocent anyway right but they add they add the word innocent in there just to emphasize this sense that they they are capital v victims because they're not combatants and they they they're not even potential combatants okay and therefore attacking them is uh, a capital c crime Okay, and they they are exemplary victims. Now, empirically, when we when we reconstruct the epi, uh, you know episodes of mass violence against civilians, you you will see uh, you know much more complex situation. So the depoliticizing depoliticizing the, the genocide the depoliticizing effect of the genocide concept simplifies and distorts our understanding of of what happened. And the politics of recognition. I'll give you a very concrete example. So, there is a tendency on the part of Armenian historians and historians who support the, you know an Armenian cause to portray the genocide of 1915 onwards, you know, akin to the Holocaust. You know that the Ottomans, these Islamic fanatics, attacked this Christian minority. There'd been this sort of an increase in 
anti-Christian, anti-Armenian sentiment, you know, in the decades preceding the First World War, there were these massacres in the 1890s, and it all culminates in the First World War when they have the opportunity to do this. You know, it's a sort of the war is sort of a cover and a pretext. And so this is the kind of narrative you would see in the in narrations of the Holocaust, right? You know, there was a sort of increased anti-Semitism, the Nazis were the ultimate anti-Semites, and then they they executed their fiendish pre-existing plan, you know, when, when they could under the cover of war. Now, you know, this is not how and why the genocide against the Armenians happened and it took place. It was much more in this sort of military nexus, which I explained uh, a few minutes ago. Now, that leaves the complicating issue of the Holocaust because, uh, you know, Jews in Germany were not engaged in, in a, any of them were engaged in a, uh, an insurgency uh, that the, the state could use as a pretext to round everyone up, okay? So I have to devote a long chapter, chapter seven of the book, to, to account for the Nazi case in, in the, my broader story of permanent security. And, you know, I am an historian of Germany and I've studied these things a lot over the years. And the way I see it, and, and I'm not the only one, is that the Nazis were you know, taking the logic of preemption to you know, an ultimate paranoid conclusion by, by trying to prevent in, uh, in attacking the left the trade unions, socialist parties, and Jews, who they saw as sort of effectively supporters of, of that liberal leftist globalist Germany, attacking these forces in after 1933 in order to prevent the collapse of the home front that they perceived as determinative of the outcome of the First World War in 1917 and 1918, when German, the German home front was racked by strikes and defeatism. And, uh, you know, the liberal press was in favor of a you know, negotiated settlement. And, and this was, you know, decried as defeatism. And many of your listeners will know that there's this stab in the back myth that the German right and you know, large proportions of the German public believed in in the 1920s, which is that, you know, we would have won the war had it not been for the stab in the back. That is the stab in the back of the military by defeatist elements in the domestic population, you know, the liberal press, you know, the liberal Jews who ran the newspapers, you know, this is the kind of the way they spoke, and um, the leftist trade unions and so forth. So we're not going to let this happen again. So when we get power in 1933, we are going to uh, preemptively uh, liquidate them uh, by rounding them up and putting them in camps. And this is what happened. Uh, you know, the left were the first people to be attacked, trade union leaders and so forth. And, um, you know, eventually this was expanded to Jews. Um, now, there was no grand plan uh, about, quote unquote, the Jewish question. This evolved very much in the context of military planning and um, the contingencies of the war in the, in the late 30s and early 40s, which I can't get into now. But uh, I, I do argue that the, the, the logic and practice of uh, uh, the mass murder of Jews was very much in keeping with uh, patterns of imperial violence, you know, over the last 500 years. And that's something that the Nazis themselves said. You know, they they talked, Hitler and others talked constantly about imperial history and not just about what the British and the French had done in the 19th century, but also the Mongols uh, and ancient empires, you know, Rome, Carthage. This is something that was on their mind a lot as a source of legitimation, but also a source of inspiration. Now, of course, they weren't going to see a copy of that. They were going to radicalise and, and perfect it. In a, in, a, in, a, in a fiendish sense, because you know, unlike the Roman Empire, this was a modern 
mid modern modernist state with a large army and uh, and an efficient bureaucracy, uh, and and could then imagine a, an extent and scale of extermination that that you know previous empires could never do. But the 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 system or the the, log, the mechanisms of threat perception were were I think quite consistent. And uh, now in in response to that kind of argument, people say, well. Uh, you know, the, the, the Ottomans only attacked, not all Armenians, but Armenians in particular areas where there was a, a um, you know, a, a military insecurity. And, uh, and whereas the, the Nazis had a global, you know, a global, you know, they were going to attack Jews and kill them wherever they found them, right? And, you know, the answer to that is that, you know, in the paranoid imagination of, of the Nazis and, 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 and all anti-Semites at the time, you know, Jews were a global people. There was a, a you know diasporic people. There was a, you know a world Jewry. You know there was a world Jewish Congress, and so uh, the enemy was everywhere. And so you know wherever we expand, we will we will find this you know elements of this enemy. So we need to deal with them. I mean, it's a terrible way of thinking. Obviously, you know you know I'm trying to expose and condemn it, uh, and I'm and I'm trying to and I'm trying to show how racialization, you know, those uh, groups that are identified along racial lines, uh, is combined with what social scientists call securitization, seeing them as a security threat. Uh, and once you combine these, these uh, processes, then, then you're in very difficult, then you're, then you're in, in, the, in the realms of permanent security and a nihilist, and if you like, genocidal thinking. And this, you know, in some ways, comes to a call you make at the end of your book, um, or towards the end of your book, you you talk about a revaluation of international law. Um, how would a revaluation of international law that would make permanent security a crime recenter or perhaps fully center civilian protection with it? And uh, a somewhat related question, you mentioned the article I wrote for Journal of Genocide Research. You know, in that, whether it's, you know, let's say permanent, permanent security crime or the crime of genocide, I make the argument that, um, you know, those who take up arms in defense of themselves, whether of genocide or aggressive war, um, should also be considered uh, victims. Um, you know, do you, uh, you know, when shifting to permanent security, are, are distinctions between civilian and human destruction any more or less important? So once again, that's a you know, revaluation and the centering of, uh, sorry, centering of civilian protection, but also then the question of those who take up arms. Right, right, right. Uh, terrific, terrific questions. There are two there. So one is my somewhat utopian idea that this should be, if you like, a convention or international treaty on permanent security to replace these atrocity crimes or to augment them. You know, the atrocity crimes being genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes and ethnic cleansing. You know, this is how the, the UN Secretariat, which has special rapporteurs on, on, this, on this kind of thing, uh, talk about them. Uh, one reason they talk about atrocity crimes is because, partly because genocide is so impossible to prove. So let's bundle it with these other ones, which are which are easier to prove. Uh, uh, it's utopian. My idea is utopian because states limit the definition of genocide in order to retain, you know, room for maneuver in in within you know the in, in asserting their sovereignty, so they can engage in extremist violence uh, if they feel that their survival is at stake. You know, the realist position in international relations is that. States are driven by you know, a very emphatic sense of self-interest, and that they will ignore international law and conventions and norms, uh, all the, the, the texture of international society, if they feel their survival is at stake. So, you know, national survival and the you know the reproduction of the state 
is the you know driving policy. Now I tend to agree with that. So in that sense, I'm a realist. Uh, and so it's you know once you have states and and world world politics is organised along you know uh, con, uh, states meeting in the United Nations, it's very you know it's very difficult to and 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 state survival is seen as the ultimate good, right? It's very difficult to imagine a scenario in which permanent security is uh, is uh, institutionalised by these states. Uh, that said, you know the, there are many other movements which uh, would have been seen as utopian, like, you know, the Geneva Conventions uh, decades before, and then they became a reality. So I want to start the thinking processes to, to move to a situation where it's, it's widespread for, for members of the international public, if you want to use that language, to, to talk about the illegitimacy of permanent security so that uh, when, when a state engages in, in certain types of behavior, practices, and policies, uh, they can be challenged and say, look, you know, we understand that every state has a right to, to basic security, you know, like, a, like an individual, right? Uh, however, you know, you're now engaging in permanent security, and this is why, you know, and, and then, they're, they're, you know, this could be, this could be put um, to all kinds of states. Now, uh, let's talk about the Uyghurs briefly. I'm not an expert on that, but we did we did publish an important article by Joe Smith Finlay from the University of Newcastle in the Journal of Genocide Research late last year, which has already garnered many many thousands of downloads uh, uh, because she's a, uh, an expert on uh, Xinjiang and and the Uyghurs, and this is a very well informed piece, and it's scholarly rather than journalistic, and so and and uh, uh, you know what what seems to be occurring is that you know there were and are some some Uyghur separatist elements, and the the, the, the the communist state has decided to use that, you know, in fighting separatism, which is, you know, one of their main slogans, they, you know, use that language in Tibet as well, uh, is, to, is to decide to solve this issue once and for all by incarcerating large numbers of Uyghurs in so-called re-education camps, uh, exploiting them for labor and, uh, uh, you know, limiting uh, the, birth, the birth rate and so forth. Um, and this is this is cast in security terms. Now it is it is driven by security, but it's driven by permanent security terms, which is rather than dealing you know surgically or rather you know in a very you know in a very focused way with particular insurgents, it's an attack on the entire population, um, which is you know completely uh, completely illegitimate and outrageous. Uh, so uh, we could then talk about whether this is an illegitimate application of a security anxiety rather than getting involved in these these uh, quibbles about whether it is or is not genocide you know so the, the problem right. with that approach is that well if if enough people think it's not genocide they go okay everything's okay then <laughs> and it's not okay okay uh, so that right, or just not not as bad as as they say it is <laughs> it's, yeah it's just crimes against humanity or something now uh, right. That came out with the Darfur report that the United Nations uh, issued in 2007, where they, where uh, you know about Sudan and what was happening in, in Darfur, and the the uh, the report said where there's um, persecution here and crimes against humanity, you know, which is pretty bad. Okay, persecution is itself a, a particular element in the uh, ICC statute. And it's a crime against humanity, and you know it's racially motivated and so forth, and the. The, uh, there was an audible sigh of relief from Khartoum and, and some members of the African Union. And they, oh, that's good. Only crimes against humanity uh, because it doesn't carry the same stigma as, as genocide. Uh, 
Now, why that's the case is also a subject of this book. You know, Jane, uh, this is where the cultural history of memory politics or memory regimes is so important. Then, this is the kind of thing historians do. Like, why, why is genocide considered the crime of crimes and not the crime against humanity? Good question. Now, your second question was about whether the do you mean irregular irregulars who uh, paramilitaries who take up arms and say in a national liberation movement uh, should be considered. Uh, as casualties in the same category as civilians. Is that what you mean? Uh, there, there's that. I, I mean, I, I know in the article I talk about um, even members of the military who, uh, of course, are accepting some risk, um, you know, sometimes compulsory, but accepting some risk by being in the military, um, but who I think, you know, still retain their right to life uh, and that an act of aggression, a war of aggression um, is actually, you know, you know, um, taking away that, that right from them, uh, even again, as they accept uh, the risks associated with being in the military. Right, right. Well, look, I know there are military ethicists who've written quite a lot about this, and I'm not on top of that literature, so I, I hesitate to, to speak definitively here. But the, you know, I, I you know, radical as I do intend uh, some arguments of this book to be, I do take Take as a given and as a as a as a premise and as a starting point the you know the conventional and normative view in international society that uh, combatants should not be targeted in, in military campaigns and that um, combatants are fair game in certain you know in certain circumstances obviously POWs uh, are not people who who've surrendered a, a you know a protected persons to use the language of the Geneva Conventions right. You know, there's a lot of literature now being developed on, uh, or being published on the, um, you know, the, the additional protocols of 1977. You know, which is trying to increase the number of categories which of protected persons. You know, particularly in in insurgencies. You know, in anti-colonial warfare and so forth. So this is all very important to to watch. So I, you know, in some ways, it's a very conventional uh, premise to the book. Uh, but he, you know, what I'm trying to do in in making that choice is is challenge states um, in relation to standards that they pertain, or they purport to uphold. So that, you know, there's a an act of ideology critique here. You know, that is okay. Here's here are your normative commitments. Let's see, if, you know, you know, let's let's judge your behaviour in relation to them. So uh, you know, maybe a more a more creative theorization would um, would try to would try to uh, incorporate the, the kind of actors you're talking about here, but I I don't do that. Not I don't to be sure. So that that may be a an, uh, an analytical disadvantage, but a but a normative advantage in terms of um, you know trying to trying to broaden the idea of shocking the conscience of mankind. We would need your book, I guess, your next book on uh, <laughs> on military to take the step of right. take it a step further. Hopefully, I'll get to that sometime somewhere down the line. Um, well, you know, as, as we do get towards the end of our conversation, um, I wanted to spend a moment on the impact of your research on genocide studies, uh, including a, a brief excerpt. And in your chapter, Genocide Studies and the Repression of the Political, you talk about how there has been a preoccupation with genocide prevention that has included situating the U.S. as a candidate for genocide prevention, while also looking away from the role the U.S. has played in genocide. Uh, you mentioned Indonesia uh, in your book in 1965 into 1966. And you also wrote, quote, Instead of exposing the function of permanent security, the genocide studies leadership now relent. This is at the time now relentlessly excommunicated 
excuse me, excommunicated scholars who revived the Vietnam era link of genocide, an empire that jeopardized their favorite, sorry, their favorite view of the U.S. as world sheriff, end quote. There's a related example of a scholar being attacked and censored on a discussion board for just suggesting that we look at U.S. actions in Afghanistan after 9-11 and their impact on the civilians during the harsh winter. I was criticized by a scholar for being, quote unquote, utterly unfair to cement the power in my book. And as you know, there have also been attacks levied by some against scholars who have dared to talk about Palestinians and genocide studies. So all that, what does your book mean for genocide studies for you as a scholar? And how has it been received by the field so far? Well, it's only just come out very early February, uh, as you said. So the, the, it's early days. There haven't been any formal receptions. I've done you know, some podcasts like this. So uh, I think we'll have to wait and see uh, how people think. Uh, I think in, in the emails you said to me, you sent to me, you talked about it might be creating an intellectual crisis in genocide studies. Well, that's the idea. I, uh, it is meant to rattle the cage conceptually by writing a genealogy of the very idea of genocide. Uh, that's that, that's what I do as an historian, uh, and and to do that in quite some detail. You know, that's why the book is five hundred pages. Uh, with another you know, somewhat over-the-top index, which uh, my amazing indexer <laughs> indexer produced another hundred pages. I was indexer. wondering if you did that yourself or not. <laughs> no, 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 no. I paid someone to do that. So the the uh, uh, it, it, it is meant to 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 get people to sit back and and think about the categories that they use and the functions of those categories and in, in the way we we uh, you know organize uh, our our thinking about mass violence normatively and in, you know and in terms of hierarchies so that we can we can begin to rethink those categories and, and maybe come up with new ones you know which I propose I propose in this book now uh, you you mentioned the Afghani case the Afghan case and the Palestine case now the you know they clear given the human rights watch report which came out today is over 200 pages with exacting references and footnotes and so forth about uh, crime of apartheid and uh, and and some others uh, in in Palestine and Israel, including in Israel itself. So we're talking about Palestinian citizens of Israel, not just an occupied West Bank. Uh, you know, there, there's clearly there's clearly going to be uh, a fraud, obviously, uh, but exacting debate about the application of international law in in in, in that situation. Now. There are some people who've used the, the genocide concept there, but Human Rights Watch, which is a very, you know, uh, one of the gold chip, blue chip uh, NGOs, and uh, is, is very cautious at the same time, you know, has not used genocide in this case. And it may not be the right concept and may not be the right concept for Afghanistan as well. Now, my answer to that is, well, the, the, you know, the problem is the concept of genocide, you know, which lets states uh, off the hook for all kinds of uh, uh, different styles of violence, whether structural, you know, slow burning, low intensity over time, violence against civilians. Um, and, you know, it's international law gives them a free pass. So we need to rethink international law. And that's the, that's the point of the book. So that we find the kind of things you've just mentioned in your question as shocking as, you know, what, what happened to, what happened to, the Rohingya and Rakhine state, because there has been a fair bit of international attention about that, you know, but, you know, that's, that's an ethnic cleansing uh, and a population expulsion, you know, which, which has echoes of what happened in Palestine and in South Asia in 1947, 48. Yeah. Uh, there, the, the, this is not, 
the idea of uh, of uh, shifting hundreds of thousands of people uh, during a war in the in the consolidation of a nation state is not a new idea. You know, the the Chinese case with the Uyghurs is somewhat different because you don't have a military context and uh, the borders are pretty secure. That state is very much in charge, but that there it's very much preemptive. You know, trying to prevent their uh, there being a secession in the future, so you know it's a, it's a terrific example of permanent security and its and its temporal paranoia in, in action. So you know, as I said before, I'm trying to get away from these debates about you know is it or is it not genocide, but let's rethink, uh, let's let's agree on the premise of the of civilian flourishing, and uh, which in the in the Israel-Palestine case would mean all civilians between the river and the sea, you know, Jewish and non-Jewish, Jewish and Palestinian. Right? Let let's uh, uh, let's take that as a starting point, and then and then rebuild and rethink international law uh, with that as the as the hypergood, uh, and rather than rather than with the 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 flawed building blocks which we inherited from the Second World War. You know, crimes against humanity and, and so forth, genocide. Thanks, Thurkid. I mean, your book really has has given you know me a lot to think about. Um, you know, I, I wrote an article for Third World Quarterly on, on Yemen, and I I make an argument by looking at the uh, physical, biological, and cultural impacts of the war um, that we could look at it as a synchronized attack on life, and and therefore um, genocide or genocidal, um, but. I think, you know, from your book, permanent security actually makes more sense um, rather than, again, trying to sort of squeeze something into the concept of genocide for this, you know, I don't, I don't want to trivialize my own article, but for the sake of like, applying the term genocide, permanent security just, it, it makes more sense to me. Yeah, well, I think your, you know, your humanistic instincts were entirely correct. And, and the empirical parts of that article about the, the, the different modalities of suffering and the, the infliction of suffering, you know, uh, uh, entirely accurate. But as you say, when when we you know when we use the genocide concept, you just you just meet this this incredulity among readers who say, well, the, you know, we accept that these terrible things are going on, but but you know, this is not what genocide looks like because it doesn't look like the Holocaust. And it's that that sort of syllogism, if you like, syllogistic style of reasoning that I investigate in the book, because I myself engaged in the kind of conceptual stretching that you've been engaging in, you know, trying to utilize the genocide concept for indigenous peoples, right? It's analogous to Yemen in some ways. And in, in the sense that it's, you know, ignored, largely ignored. And uh, I, I, I faced the same reaction consistently, whether among scholars or just by members of the public, they go, how dare you use the concept of genocide for Australia? I mean, you're trivializing um and insulting, trivializing genocide and insulting the real victims of, of genocide by, by utilizing it in this way. Now, I pushed back against that for years, but in the end, I thought, actually, you can't. Uh, you know, the, the sort of the consistency of this response made me realize that it's in the DNA of the concept. Uh, you know, in other words, the, the Holocaust is the archetype for genocide is in its DNA. It's not just a contingent relationship. I thought it was and could be pulled apart. But it's actually in its DNA, and I think I show that in some detail how and why that occurred in the book, and and so we need to think of a new concept if we are interested in in civilian protection and flourishing. Yeah, 
I, I think you're right. Um, well, Dirk, thank you so much for your time. Um, before we do let you go, is there anything uh, our listeners should should watch out for that you're working on right now? So the the current project, having you know, this one having finished over a year ago, because it takes about a year for, for a book to come out after you send the files off to the publisher, is a is a study of uh, catastrophic memory politics. Uh, it's called Genocide and the Terror of History, and it's inter- I'm interested in how the stories that members of you know, mem- memory entrepreneurs uh, is, a, is a term that the memory study scholars use um, in, in, in various groups tell about their national group histories terrorizes, you know, in which they've suffered over the centuries, you know, from persecution and so forth, terrorizes succeeding generations. Uh, it gives them, in a sense, a kind of vicarious PTSD, you know, en masse, um, so that they... Um, uh, engage in uh, preventative and preemptive violence in order to, to forestall, you know, future persecution. So it becomes a, you know, the psychosocial preconditions for engaging in genocide, if you want to use that term. So, uh, in other words, in uh, uh, what I see in many cases is that in order uh, people uh, engage in what we might call genocidal activities in order to prevent genocide. So you can see this is a terrible dynamic that goes on. So I'm uh, I'm reconstructing that in theory and practice uh, in, a, in a number of cases over the last 100 or 200 years. This will take a few years to come out, but you know, we were, <laughs> you know, the, the, last, the last book took uh, took uh, 14 years. So hopefully, this won't take <laughs> quite so long. Well, you were you were keeping yourself with a full plate while you were writing uh, this this long book. So, um, and I was going to say, if I am still doing this podcast uh when your next book comes out i'd love to have you back on uh we'll, we'll see where we are in a few years <laughs> okay we may have moved on right. but we might be here performing our valuable right. work especially <laughs> yours especially yours great to talk with you jeff yeah, great talk with you too Dirk. thank you so much for your time and uh and take care likewise bye <laughs>